This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. June 8th. My life has taken another turn again. The days move along with regularity over and over. One day indistinguishable from the next. A long, continuous chain. And suddenly, there is a change. When I was younger, there was another journey I wanted to make. It was a religious one. I wanted to be a priest. However, I soon realised that my real vocation, my real calling, was movies. I didn't really see a conflict between the church and the movies. Obviously, there are major differences, but I can also see great similarities between a church and a movie house. Both are places for people to come together and share a common experience. And I believe there is spirituality in films, even if it's not one that can supplant faith. The enlightened words of Martin Sorsese from a personal journey through American movies. Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. Well, it's getting close to Christmas, and I'm sure you're all quite head-wrecked as what to get the wonderful and very special in your life for Christmas. Well, the good news is you can relax back into the pillow, take a long deep breath, This morning I selected two books that I think would make for a smashing stocking filler. Books of high emotion, intense drama and tremendous faith. We're going to explore the worlds of sports and movies and meet with some terrific personalities along the way. Fergal McKay talks the greatest public sporting event on earth and his epic new book, The Complete Book of the Tour de France. A 722-page compendium of names and numbers on every human emotion on the tour. And British film critic and writer Tom Schoen talks sex, violence and religion in the movies of Martin Sorsese. This is a show about belief and drive, art and creativity, love and triumph. But first, is sport a religion? Fergal McKay is a freelance writer and cycling fan based in Dublin. Since 2010, he has been reviewing cycling books for the Podium Cafe website. He is also an occasional contributor to cyclingnews.com and was one of the contributors to Bike, a tribute to the world's greatest cycling designers. His first book has just been published by the Orion Press and is without doubt a treasure trove of lore, drama and psychology on the greatest cycling event on earth. I have to say hats off to Fergal for putting together quite a book. This guy walks, talks and eats the Tour de France. Well, a few weeks ago, Fergal and I sat down for an afternoon and discussed some of the joints, the strategies and the complex human emotions that present on the tour. I asked Fergal about the history of drugs and cycling and how, from the six-day races and on, there was always drugs in cycling. You probably couldn't have survived for six days straight without sleep, 
all that exercise, all, all that energy being expended without something. Now, it, what has to be remembered at this point is that doping wasn't illegal. There was nobody to say that this was doping. And many of the products, cocaine, you could pick up in the pharmacist. So the products they were using were stuff like cocaine, which is a good stimulant, strychnine, which deadens pain, other drugs like that that were commonly available at the time. And they were using them, but because it's in a six-day race, they were using them in a way that was obvious and the effects of the drugs were obvious. So by the end of a six-day race, you would have a guy who was tired through exhaustion, but also so you could see the effect of drugs like cocaine on the system, driving them crazy, making them hallucinate and stuff like that. So it was kind of open and somewhat talked about, but it wasn't a major topic of conversation. Now, you've started your book from 1903, when we first had the Tour de France. Can you talk me through the style of the book? Well, the whole idea of the book was to try and tell the history of the Tour de France, dating back from that first tour in 1903, all the way through to the present. Now, 2014 is the 101st Tour de France. It's only stopped for two world wars. It's been continuous every year since 1903. It was really quite a simple idea. It was simply who won what, where, when and how. And that is the idea. At the end of each chapter, there's a chart for who won each stage and who was leading the race at each stage. And then for the top 10 at the end of the race. And then over the years, ancillary prizes have been added into, into the general classification. So that was the primary objective. But you also wanted to try and tell the story of how the race was won, what stages were important. I mean, if you look at it today, it's a 21-stage race. Of those 21 stages, you can probably take out seven stages for sprinters and say they're, they're not important but sometimes they are. There's a lot going on in a race. There are the, tw- the 20 odd stage winners, the general classification winner and all the other winners. So pulling all the, those statistics together and also then trying to tell the story of how that race was won but also then trying to stitch a story together across all the years to show how the race has developed. And Fergal, it's a very ambitious book and I wasn't surprised when you said to me that you used to work as an accountant because you've put together so much information. Like I don't know how you did it but you must be nuts to be able to do something like this in the first place. I hope I'm not nuts. I mean, uh, I suppose like all fans of anything that you're a bit fanatical about it. When I told my, I got the contract for the book about a year ago. And when I told my brother I had this, his first response was to me was, sure, you've been writing this for 25 years. That I got involved watching the sport in the early 1980s when Sean Kelly and Stephen Roach were racing, when Bernardino and Laurent Fignon were racing. And I followed the sport. Uh, I won't say I followed it continuously since then. There are times when the doping issue in particular has made me want to forget the sport. But I've been a fan of the race and I review both books about cycling for a website podium cafe so over 25 years you build up an awful lot of knowledge without realizing it can you talk me through some of the real heroes in this book because literally every year there's some magnificent stories of courage and bravery there's great stories on major balls to pull it mildly and brutal competitive instincts I imagine Fergal it was very hard to actually isolate what are the stories you want to tell or did you just look at all the range of human emotions and then find stories around those as you say, it's very hard. I mean, if you look at the 2014 race just gone, you've got a great great stories about the prime contenders like Chris Froome and Alberto Contador crashing out, and that's obviously a fantastic story. But at the other extreme, you've got a great story about uh, an American guy, Andrew Talansky, who crashed twice in the first week of the race, and then midway through the race, he, he was getting dropped by the peloton. He was spat out the back of the peloton. And the simple thing he could have done was simply climbed off, climbed into the team car, and called the race quits. He didn't. He rode on. He finished the stage about 30 minutes behind the peloton. The guy's out on his own for 90 kilometres riding suffering 
in pain for the whole thing. So that's one level of hero in it, the personal hero. And if you take that through, you can find that story in pretty much everybody who's ridden the race. They've all got that personal story that you could tell. But the main story within the book was to try and talk about the winners, obviously. Um, so you are talking about the great champions of the race. So you're talking about the likes of Gino Bertelli, Fausto Coppi, Eddie Merckx, Bernardino. Can we talk about some of the great Italians in the Tour de France? Octavio Botecchia was quite a phenomenal man when you think about it. He managed to pull off some amazing stunts. Octavio Batecchia, as you say, I mean, he's a fascinating character. He wasn't a cyclist before the war. He was in the, the Italian army during the war and he was in a bicycle regiment. In the First World War, a lot of armies on all sides had troops using bicycles, ferrying messages, but also what he was doing was ferrying guns up to the front line. And now, the point you have to remember about the First World War in Italy is the front line was up in the Dolomites, up in the high mountains in the north of the country, fighting against the Austrians and the Germans. So Batecchia, he's riding his bike there, ferrying guns and stuff up to the front line. Coming out of the war, he moves to France I think it's to Nice where he begins to get involved in the cycling scene it's very popular down in Nice he's quickly quite good in 1923 I think it is he races in the Italian version of the Tour de France the Giro d'Italia and he races as an independent no team support he's just there on his own and he gets a, a top 10 placing in that he's immediately signed up to a French team and they take him to the Tour and he does well helping his teammate Henri Pellissier win the race and then the following year Botecchia wins himself and then he wins again the year after that and then this, his story gets really strange because he, he has one bad year on the bike and then in 1927 in the lead up to the tour where he is going to come back and he is hopefully going to, to add a third title to his Palmeiras he's found dead on the side of a road mysterious circumstances nobody knows how nobody knows why all sorts of stories have been told about how he died that uh, he was having an affair with a woman the husband found out had him killed there's stories that the fascists didn't like him because he wasn't uh, as vocal in support of them as he should have been so they killed him the stories that a farmer found him picking his grapes and threw a rock at him and killed him nobody knows two separate people have claimed that they killed him so you can't believe the two stories Can we talk about the Pope because I got a great <laughs> laugh figuring out that the Pope got involved in the tour in the early 1950s with the very colourful Italian Fausto Copi he was a remarkable guy very fond of the ladies and to put it mildly or safely a very larger than life character The Pope first of all cycling was very big in, in Italy as well as in France the French had the Tour de France the Italians had the Giro d'Italia and whereas the French tour became quite international Belgians winning it Italians obviously winning it as well the Italian tour was very much Italian an Italian race for Italians and it embodied more about Italy than the tour does about France I suppose to some extent and the Pope obviously becomes involved with it because it's the sport of the people he becomes a fan of certain individuals within the race he blesses the race he gives the race a patron saint the Madonna of Gisello so that's where the Pope comes in at the time of Festo Coppi you can't talk about Festo Coppi without mentioning Gino Bartelli that Italy produced two great champions at the same time the two are quite opposite of one another Bartelli was the more pious one of his nicknames was El Pio but he was the guy the Pope preferred more Fausto Coppi then goes and commits the cardinal sin of leaving his wife for another woman which in 19, 1950s Italy was obviously not the done thing that produced some ludicrous situations where the police raided their house one day to see that they weren't sharing the same bed Fausto Coppi's biggest problem was that he was doing it publicly there were, there were other sports people at the same time also having affairs but they were keeping everything quiet they were keeping two houses they were living with the wife and they had the mistress on the side Fausto Coppi wasn't going to play by those 
those rules. He was going to live his life the way he wanted to live his life. And that was the way he rode his bike as well. He, he raced the way he wanted to race. And that, that's one of the things that people admire about Fausto Coppi and why he's such a great champion, that he attacked consistently and, and he just rode his own race and, and didn't give a tactical, boring display of cycling. And it's interesting when you say that, Fergal, about him being quite an aggressive cyclist and, you know, he was quite savage on the bike. He was fearless and he didn't give a hoot who was doing what, whatever it took, he was going to win. There are prizes for this, though, in the Tour de France, aren't there? There's a combativity prize. Each stage produces a winner of a combativity prize. On the daily stages, that combativity prize is often seen as sort of a, similar to the man of the match in football, but in cycling, it's sometimes a consolation prize. It's the guy who's been out in front for the longest on the stage and didn't win the stage, mm-hmm. that he's been out for 180 of 190 kilometres. He's caught in the final five kilometres. You've got to give him a consolation prize. But there is also a combativity prize across the whole race, which often is, is overlooked, but an awful lot of the great champions have been the guys who picked that up and that is that is one of the things that people admire about the great champions is that they are aggressive across the whole race that if you take something like Lance Armstrong or Jacques Anquetel they had very cold calculating ways of winning tours they had certain stages that they were going to win that was it and the, the rest of the time they were just going to let everything else play out around them people like Fausto Coppi Eddie Merckx they just attacked 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 and enlivened the race all the time and that's what people want from the tour is, is a lively race so it's something that they have it's in their instinct really isn't it if you look at what makes a great cyclist it all comes down to that and I think Merck was pretty good but Ocaña had to have been the king of the offensive cyclist Luis Ocaña he's a Spanish rider from the 1970s he won the tour in 1973 he's most famous for losing the tour in 1971 1971 you're in the middle of the era of Eddie Merckx Eddie Merckx is probably the greatest cyclist who ever lived the joke goes around that Eddie Merckx is the cyclist that God wishes he was so Luis Ocaña comes along at a time when Eddie Merckx is in his prime. Every other rider in the peloton has more or less given up trying to defeat Eddie Merckx and they're riding for second place and hoping that Eddie Merckx will crash or crack and they'll be able to pick up the pieces. Ocaña comes along in the 1971 tour and just attacks. There's eight days of that race where the race is just turned on its head across eight days and eight days where something is happening virtually every day. On the stage to the Puy de Dome, just a small little extinct volcano with a road going up and around it, Ocaña attacks and amazingly pulls a small amount of time out of Merckx. A few days later in Orsier Mallette, he puts minutes into Merckx and nobody puts minutes into Merckx. And suddenly the whole Merckx era looks like it's over, that you've got this great undefeatable champion, Eddie Merckx, suddenly laid low by this, this great Spaniard Luis Ocaña but Ocaña had an issue that Eddie Merckx was able to deal with Ocaña lived his life to the beat of his own drum he didn't race tactically if he felt like going off and attacking at the start of a stage that was what he was going to do and damn the consequences he could be out there for 180 kilometres caught in the last 10 kilometres lose everything and he'd still be happy because he had ridden aggressively for 180 kilometres that isn't the way cycling is, is run as a sport though you've got to actually win Ocaña didn't care he, he just did what he wanted to do and Eddie Eddie Merckx finds Ocaña now in a position where he's about to win the biggest race on the planet and Eddie Merckx starts putting him under pressure. After four days in which Ocaña has put Merckx under pressure, there is a flat stage to Marseille. Now a flat stage is a sprinter stage. You don't pick up any time on a flat stage. You never pick up any time on a flat stage. It's simply the group goes along. Most of the time the group will ride it as, as half a rest day for themselves. You know, they'll ride along at a steady pace and then they'll pick it up in the final 50 kilometres. Eddie Merckx from the very beginning of that stage goes on the attack. He takes off with four or five teammates and a few other riders 
with them and they just ride aggressively all the way to Marseille. They end up arriving in Marseille something like half an hour ahead of the fastest time estimate they were supposed to be there. They're still setting up the race in Marseille. The mayor hasn't arrived in the grandstand to see the race arriving. And this is a great insult because Marseille has obviously paid money to host the tour. The mayor isn't there to see the finish so there's all sorts of arguments. At the end of that day Merckx has only pulled back a couple of minutes on Ocania but he's shown that even though he is supposedly down and out he's still willing to attack and he continues that he pulls back some time in a time trial and then in the Pyrenees when they're racing to Luchon I think it is over to Col de Monte they get to the top of the mountain just as a rainstorm kicks in the descent is down some hairpin bends Eddie Merckx leads down the descent riding quite aggressively down the descent Ocania has got some like an 8 minute lead at this stage the wise thing to do would have been to just let Merckx go to leave him to go down the descent you'd pick him up in the valley roads below or at most you'd only lose a couple of minutes to him and you could afford to do that Ocania does not do this he sticks on Merckx's wheel he shouldn't have done this everybody says he shouldn't have done this Merckx is a better descender Ocania had a reputation for crashing on descents and the first time he rode the tour in 1969 his race more or less ended on a descent in the Vosges mountains so he's chasing Merckx down this mountain they come to to one hairpin and Merckx crashes goes off the road Ocania crashes and goes off the road. And then what happens is, as part of the mythology of Louis Ocania, isn't that just that he was a reckless rider, he was also just a bloody unlucky rider. He stands up, and as he's standing up in the middle of the road, picking his bike up, ready to get on, another rider comes down, crashes straight into him. He's knocked down, they stand him up, a second rider crashes into him. That's it, he's out of the race. He, he's winded. He's got no bones broken or anything, but, uh, I mean, he's got severe bruising around the ribs and he's out of the race. Eddie Merckx wins that tour. But he has 73. Then he has 73. 73 becomes a nod tour because Merckx decided to sit that one out for whatever Merckx's own reasons were. And there's all sorts of strange stories about what his real reasons were. And in 1973, Ocania goes into the tour. And by 1973, the French fans are probably getting fed up with Eddie Merckx. That Eddie Merckx is just crushing the life out of the races. From the day the race starts, you know that Eddie Merckx is going to win. 1973 comes along, the French fall in love with Louis Ocania. What's funny about the way they fall in love with him is that the way he wins is the same way Eddie Merckx wins. The guy ends up leaving the 1973 tour with six stage victories. He's led the race from the end of the first week. His team took the team prize. It was a performance on a par with anything Eddie Merckx did, except for one problem. It didn't have Eddie Merckx there to race against. And you probably have, if you go back to the 2014 tour, the one that's just gone, you have the same problem that that with Chris Froome and Alberto Contador out of the race, whoever was going to win that race was obviously going to be said, well, you didn't defeat Chris Froome and you didn't defeat Alberto Contador, so did you really win the tour or not? And Fergal, when you say there that Merckx is possibly the greatest cyclist of the tour ever, what about Greg Lamont? What about Lawrence Fignon. What about some of the real heroes of the race? Well, Merckx counts as the greatest cyclist not just because of the Tour but because he won everything else. So the Giro d'Italia. The the Giro d'Italia, the Vuelta Espana. There's five major one-day races known as the Monuments. He won every single one of them. The World Championships. 530-something races in it across the length of his career. It would be easier to produce a list of the races he did not win than to try and look at the races he did win. So that's where Eddie Merckx's reputation comes in. Is he the best tour cyclist? That's where you get into arguments and most people will tell you that Fausto Coppi was a much better hero at the tour than Eddie Merckx because Fausto Coppi won with panache. His style, grace. Fausto Coppi looked lovely on a bicycle. He represents more and Fausto Coppi only won the tour twice but for many people those two tour victories are better than the, the five tour victories Eddie Merckx won. But you want a cyclist with a bit of imagination. That's what people want. I mean the recent tours 2012 and 2013 Bradley Wiggins and, and Chris Froome winning them they're very tactical victories they're very cold 
and efficient victories that it's not an easy victory for them they have to fight for those wins but there's no real passion about it that it's it's all just cold and technical and too organized and what you want to see in the race is a yellow jersey actually attacking and for, for something like that you have to go back to the 1980s for the classics to see people like Laurent Fignon and Bernardino because they had a, a style of racing tate on course from the front of the from the front of the race and Bernardino is a classic of this in that he would just attack and attack and attack if he felt like attacking similar to Luis Ocania in that in that regard he was going to attack but Bernardino also had a tactical head on him he wanted to actually win the race he wasn't just attacking because he wanted to win he was attacking because he wanted to hurt people and of course if we're looking at what makes a winner emotional discipline really scores high if you look at Stephen Roach for example how he was able to outsmart his team and all his competitors and not get beaten down by all the politics well Stephen Roach is a very good example of mental discipline I mean if I just bring Fausto Coppi back into this Fausto Coppi is fantastic on the bike but he's mentally fragile there are great days in the tour where Fausto Coppi just gave up something didn't go right and he felt the whole race was over and it took his teammates and his team manager to coax him on and get him to go on and get the best out of himself and you've got that throughout the history of the race Luis Ocaña never had a director sportif who got the best out of him there's another Spanish rider Federico Bajamontes similar to Ocaña in some regards he got very fortunate and he found a director sportif who was able to get the best out of himself with Stephen Roach you've got a situation where he had nobody on his side in the Giro d'Italia which came just before the tour about four weeks before the tour the team wanted an Italian to win Roach wanted to win himself he ends up splitting the team to the point where he has got one teammate and a mechanic on his side and the rest are supporting the Italian rider Stephen Roach goes off and does his own thing that created bad blood bad politics going into the tour so Stephen Roach goes into the tour he can't be sure that he's got the whole team on his side so what he's got to do is to organise support from other riders which little deals get done you've got a contract for next year you might help me when I need some help there's a lot of this goes on in cycling a lot of it is favours I'll help you today you'll help me tomorrow sometimes there is money involved but not always and that's the important thing about the way Stephen Roach rode was that he was so very firmly determined to win and, and that, that is great to see in a rider Treachery is another problem on the tour The treachery obviously comes in with Stephen Roach and I mean you've got two types of treachery you've got treachery where other riders are trying to get rid of you other teams are, are trying to get rid of you you can go back to any tour but I mean if you take the 1911 tour there's a guy called Paul Duboc a French guy who looks like he could win it himself and in the Pyrenees he collapses by the side of the road and what becomes quickly apparent is he's been handed up a water bottle and slipped to Mickey Finn he's been poisoned who did it nobody knows all the suspicion goes on Gustave Garage who ends up winning the race because he obviously gained the most so there is that level of treachery but there's also treachery within the team and that's the sort of treachery Stephen Roach had in in 1987 where the team gets pulled apart and if you bring back Fausto Coppi again when Fausto Coppi was riding in the 1950s the tour is being raced by national teams between 1930 and the mid 1960s it wasn't the trade teams we have today it was national teams France Italy Belgium whatever so the Italian team had to pick the best riders in Italy. Now, the best riders don't always make the best team. I mean, if you if you put it in football, you wouldn't necessarily put seven strikers on your team. You've obviously got to have defensive players and stuff. So the Italian team has, has got a problem. It's got Fausto Coppi, Gino Bertelli, and a third Italian called Fiorenzo Magni. How do you get those three people to work together? There's all sorts of problems with them working together. Why should Gino Bertelli help Fausto Coppi win the race? Because then Fausto Coppi is going to be earning more than Gino Bertelli. He's going to be more popular with the people. So, you know, everybody has their own politics to play with her. So to 
deal with it in the Italian situation, the team manager, Alfredo Binda, who is a great champion rider in, in his own day, he simply sat the riders down before the race, hammered it all out with them, forced them to sign an agreement that they would be held to. And they publicised the fact that they signed this agreement. So you're going to do this, you're going to do that, you're going to get this help, that help, and that sorted out. And that is the way it's dealt with. And if you go into Eddie Merckx's time, Eddie Merckx built a team around himself. There was no way there was going to be any dissenting voices. He wasn't going to be worried about a teammate coming up behind him and stabbing him in the back. So you've got these elements of treachery. You got it in modern times in 2012 when Bradley Wiggins won. He thought that his teammate Chris Froome had tried to take the victory and that's created an awful lot of bad blood between those two to the point where Bradley Wiggins is more or less out of the tour team and it's just Chris Froome now. You had it in 2009 when Lance Armstrong came back. He was riding with Alberto Contador. Lance Armstrong says, yes, I'm going to help Alberto Contador to victory but everybody knows that Lance Armstrong wants the victory himself and Armstrong quite quickly makes it plain that he's racing for the victory himself. So again, you've got a situation of the team divided. The most famous example of it all though probably comes from 1986. Bernardino was coming to the end of his career. Bernardino for several years it said that he was going to retire on his 30th birthday which was in the autumn of that year so this was going to be his last tour he's won the tour five times already he has been an absolutely brilliant French rider the attacking style that everybody loves in winning the 1985 tour he had been helped by an American teammate called Greg LeMond during the 1985 tour to acknowledge the assistance he'd been given by LeMond Eno says next year at the tour I'm going to help LeMond win the tour is going to have its first American victory that's great for the tour because it suddenly opens up the tour to a new market Come the 1986 tour, though, things aren't quite the way they seemed. The French press are talking up the possibility of, of getting his sixth victory, being on a shelf above Eddie Merckx and Jacques Anquetel, who had five victories as well. An English journalist, Richard Moore, has written a great book about this. You could write a whole book on it, obviously, and it's a book called Slaying the Badger. It's the full story of that 1986 race. Moore doesn't quite get to the bottom of it because nobody knows. You end up making a decision for yourself. Do you support Le Mans in this story or do you support Eno? What happens is Eno goes on the attack. He starts putting Le Monde under pressure. Eno initially says that he's doing it to burn off all the rivals on all the other teams, but he also says he's doing it to give Le Monde a wordy victory. That if you go back to the notion of procession rides, that's not what people wanted. Eno believes in this passionate form of cycling. This is what he's telling people. He wants Le Monde to have a victory worthy of a great champion. But it looks like Bernard Eno is riding for himself at, that, at this stage. And this is what Le Monde firmly believes. And the problem becomes that with Eno doing this, he's whipping a passion among the French fans. So Le Monde runs the risk of a French fan doing something to him, not just Dino doing something to him. And that creates a, a massive great story between the race as to who's going to win. Now, unfortunately, or fortunately, Eno's ambition, if there was ambition, got the better of him and he wasn't as strong as, as he thought he was and Le Mans ends up beating him anyway and there, there's a great photograph from that tour of them climbing Alpe d'Huez, one of the most famous climbs in the race. Eno had attacked early in the day, Le Mans got up to him the whole peloton is miles behind him so if that was Eno's objective it, it's worked that Le Mans has no other rivals in the race. The two of them are going up the mountain side by side working together, they come up to the end of the race and they go arms across each other's shoulders crossing the line like that. It looked wonderful Last question. Table of six. Who's in it? Tour riders Bernardino, without a doubt. He he would be my favourite rider from all of them. More so than Eddie Merckx. There's something cold about it. Eddie Merckx's victories to me. Eno has the passion side of it. You'd probably add Merckx because he is the greatest cyclist of all time. The cyclist God wants to be. Sean Kelly. 
great Irish rider, never really a contender for, for overall. He was always going to have one bad day in the race. Quite a good sprinter. He won four green jerseys, the sprinter's prizes in the race. That's that's three. Lance Armstrong you would have to pick because of the doping, simply because he is Lance Armstrong. At the moment, we're supposed to be airbrushing Lance Armstrong from the history of the sport. We can't do that. He's part of the history of the sport, so you've got to have him involved. I would probably bring in a Spanish rider, either Luis Ocaña or Federico Bahamontes, just because of the character of them. And the sixth rider, sixth rider I'd probably pick the guy who won the first Tour de France, Maurice Garin, because... He won that first tour in style and then he lost the second tour in style by winning it and then being stripped of his victory. And that was Fergal McKay. The complete book of the Tour de France 2014 edition is published by the Orient Press and retails at about €37. Now for anyone who likes sport, poetry, a bit of human psychology or just a rollicking good read, well this book has it all in spades. Okay, coming up next... I'm going to stick with the theme of Christmas books and we're going to dip into Tom Schoen's Scorsese, a retrospective, I think an essential read for any movie buff. But first, let's take a bit of a break. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. Now, if you've missed any of our shows to date, don't worry, they're all up as podcasts on Newstalk.com and there are cinch to download. All you need to do is go to newstalk.com forward slash talking books and we've some very handy apps for iPhone, iPad and Android and I think it's fairly straightforward from there. Okay let's now lash into some more quality action, drive and higher callings and meet with the unrivaled and formidable Mr Martin Scorsese. Tom Schoen is one of the best if not the best film critic writing in the English language. He is also a film critic for The Economist Quarterly magazine, Intelligent Life, and a regular contributor to The Guardian newspaper. Tom lives in Brooklyn, where he teaches film history at New York University. His latest book, Scorsese, a retrospective, has just been published by Thames and Hudson, and is a must-have for any Scorsese fan, which basically means, I think, everybody. This lavish retrospective is a fitting tribute to a remarkable director, now into his sixth decade in cinema and showing no signs of slowing down. Since his emergence in the early 1970s, Martin Scorsese has become one of the most respected names in cinema. Classics such as Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Mean Streets and Goodfellas are regularly cited as being amongst the finest films ever made. Now, I have to say Tom's book is very revealing on the artistic temperament of Martin Scorsese and the spiritual side of his nature. His choice of images, quotes and reflections are truly wonderful. I think this book will keep you going for days and days. Well, early in the week, I got a chance to talk to the very busy Tom Schoen from his home in New York. I asked Tom, is Martin Scorsese the ultimate risk taker? Let's take a listen. I think... He has to be, to have had the career that he's had, which is played out this course for himself, largely independent of the, the big Hollywood studios. You know, I think he sees it as a question of, of his vision being protected. I think that he, almost like a, a mother with her cubs, you know, like he would go to the ends of the earth to protect his movie. So in the moment, he probably doesn't see it as risk. He sees it as just essential. But I mean, that's basically, you know, what he does. Many times, I think in the 70s, when he was making his classics, 
Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, these movies, uh, you know, he would rather kind of walk from the film or have his name taken off of it than have anybody else's imprint or thumbprint on that film. Uh, and of course, yes, to the, from the outside, it looks like an incredibly risky, uh, you know, way of doing business. You know, a movie like Taxi Driver, you know, which is held up today as an example of the kind of movie that doesn't get made anymore. I mean, it barely got made in 1976. But again, they pieced the funding together, they, they got it shot. And then he had a, an argument with the studio over the, over the ending of it, in which he sort of quite happily sort of threatened to walk from the picture. So even though he fought for this thing to, to exist, he was still willing to, to kind of, you know, hold a gun to its head. Yeah, I, I think sometimes that his background on the streets of Little Italy, his childhood there, helped him enormously when it came to dealing with the, the big egos in Hollywood. And not only the big egos in Hollywood, Tom, but also the big egos in the mob and also big time actors. I think that possibly his ability to take risks, his fearlessness, his courage meant that actors like De Niro wanted to work with him and he commanded their respect. Very much. I mean, I think his collaboration with De Niro is, you know, is rightly held up as the kind of the great example in the sort of modern era of, of a director and an actor working almost as one. They were very much almost like brothers. They, they realized that they'd been raised in the same area in Little Italy, just a few blocks from one another, in fact. And so when they met, it was like sort of meeting their sort of, you know, their, their phantom brother, you know. Corsese very much needed an actor of sort of De Niro's talent to front his movies and also to kind of, if you like, funnel his soul into these films. You know, like he needed his representative in the film, somebody who was going to be sort of bringing him into it. And De Niro was that. It's his way of sort of smuggling himself into the picture. And they had worked together many times. And like all collaborations, I think towards the end, they kind of, and also like brothers, they were kind of bickering quite a lot. I think, you know, they were so close. It was almost like family. So yes, De Niro, I think, kind of realized that he was onto a very good thing. One thinks of these movies as largely Scorsese's, but a lot of them were at De Niro's behest. Raging Bull was a script that De Niro sort of lugged around in his back pocket for a good 10 years before he managed to persuade Scorsese to do it. And the same with The King of Comedy. That was also a De Niro picture. So the two were very much kind of working in tandem. They just speak the same language. I think that's what it comes down to. They recognise each other as kind of equals. And you have some very interesting stories within their relationship when you write about Raging Bull and how De Niro got Scorsese to literally jump out of the booze, the drugs. At the time, just before he made Raging Bull, he had become very anxious, very depressed, and he was almost at the point of a nervous breakdown. Well, I think he very much understood the self-destructive impulses that were in the script of Raging Bull. For a while, he didn't know what to make of this script, and uh, it was about a boxer. And what did he know about boxing, right? He didn't play sports as a kid. Anything with a ball, forget about it. <laughs> you know, he was indoors watching films. So when he first got this script, it was bizarre to him that De Niro wanted him to make a, a movie about a sportsman. But then, as you say, in the late 70s, he, he, he had his own sort of brush with his own demons, you know, that brought him very, very low. And he suddenly realized that this, that's what the script was about. It was about a man destroying himself. And that he knew something about now. (laughs) So now he understood. Now he was like, oh, I know how to make this movie. So yes, he kind of crashed and burned, but then kind of out of it came Gloria's film. But yes, I think that his sort of self-destructive impulses were at their kind of greatest in in the 70s. Less so now. He's a family man and sort of settled down. But yes, he was the first kind of American kind of rock and roll director. (laughs) You know, like uh, they'd they'd had them in France, Jean-Luc Godard, people like that. But to have a kind of director as star as a rock and roll star, 
you know, that's who that's who he was anyway. And, uh, and he had a kind of rock and roll career too. And he was very visionary and also very spiritual in his approach to making movies. And you have a tremendous quote, which I think really says who Scorsese really was at heart as a person and what his artistic vision is. You quote him by saying, this is in relation to Raging Bull. I wanted to do the fight scenes as if the viewers were the fighter and their impressions were the fighters of what he would think or feel or what he would hear, like being pounded all the time. That's an amazing insight into his humanity as a person and also his respect for his audience. Well, it's funny. I mean, uh, as you were saying that, I was thinking it's, it's respect for the audience. It's also, I think, um, a, a level of kind of aggression, uh, you know, kind of worked out too. I mean, I think he, he wants an audience who can take it. And I think Raging Bull is a film that demands that you be able to stand in the ring with it. <laughs> it's a punishing film to, you know, watch. I mean, all the times I've sort of watched it, you come out feeling like you've sort of barely survived a brush in the ring with something very, very powerful. But that, as you say, is very much he wanted to put the the audience in the position almost of, of somebody who was soaking up all that punishment, I think does show profound respect for, for the adult audience, what we can take, what we'll watch. I also think that he was working out some anger. I think that he had made this big movie before that, a musical, New York, New York. It was his uh, attempt to make a big blockbuster Hollywood entertainment, and it flopped, and the critics laid into it, and the audiences went to see Star Wars instead. And I think there was a lot of anger about that. I think there was a lot of kind of anger towards the popular audience, this fickle beast. And I think some of it gets worked out in Raging Bull. (laughs) But yeah, you really have to kind of be willing to go several rounds if you want to watch that film. Tom, how personal a film was Mean Streets for him? How important was it? How much did it represent his own personal journey in life and his family background? Mean Street was was about as personal as, as a movie can get. It was, I believe, as personal as a diary entry. You know, there are moments in it that just feel almost they could have come from some Scorsese's diary. American movies hadn't really seen anything like it before Mean Streets came along. The movies were made by the studios. They were made with kind of great artistry. But the idea of kind of a film as an expression of its director's sort of personal vision had taken off in France, but not necessarily in America. Mean Streets is the movie that sort of changes that. You feel this kind of wonderful, exhilarating rush of a filmmaker who's just trying to get all the points of reference of his sort of upbringing down on screen. You know, I think now we're a little bit more used to that kind of movie, whether it be Spike Lee or uh, somebody making movies about sort of Brooklyn. Corsese was standing in Little Italy and saying, here's my patch. This is my patch. These are my people. This is my world. This is where I came from. And everything in Mean Streets has that sort of flavor of kind of authenticity to it. It's very much a movie made by a young man returning to the old neighborhood, kind of hailing people on the street. It's a wonderfully embedded piece of filmmaking. How personal it was, you can get some idea by the fact that at the very beginning, the voiceover is actually scored Scorsese himself. Although we see Harvey Keitel getting out of bed, it's actually Scorsese's voice on the narration. He talks about turning for your sins on the street. That's actually Scorsese. So there's no reason for him to be in the movie, but he just wanted to put his voice in there. It gives you some idea of just how attached he felt. And it was sort of shot around his sort of old area. Uh, also, of course, in L.A. It was a, a strange movie. It was shot both in L.A. and New York. But the exteriors were all in New York, and they were all his sort of old haunt. American movies hadn't really seen anything like that. I mean, even a movie like The Kind of Godfather... You know, which was, of course, the kind of big mob movie up to that point, was very much about the kind of the people at the top of the food chain. These were the sort of heads of the the mafia families. 
What's interesting about Mean Streets, it's all about the kind of hangers-on and the wannabes, the not-quite-made men, you know, the, the guys who aren't quite good fellas, who are just on the outskirts of the organized crime business. And so I think that was a really exciting idea, because then you get a little bit of comedy in it. So it's sort of like the Sopranos. They're sort of dealing in sort of really quite shoddy goods, these sort of Jap adapters that they bought a huge shipment of by accident, and they're trying to get rid of the sort of comedy of these sort of little men sort of on the outskirts of this big business. I think maybe it sort of represented something of how Scorsese felt, too. And he has been so strong on looking at some of the big uncomfortable experiences in society. When we look at themes of loneliness, isolation, people who are outsiders. If you look at Taxi Driver, for example, it's very much a powerful meditation on alienation in life. Well, I mean, I think you can just feel that that movie was made by somebody who understands loneliness, you know, in his bones. (laughs) He understands what it is to pace the streets of New York completely alone. I mean, it was written by this great screenwriter, Paul Schrader. When Scorsese read it, he just sort of felt like it was was so close to, to how he felt. He said it was as if I'd dreamed it. He felt very strongly that he was like Travis Bickle. I think it's the kind of great film of urban alienation. Travis is so at odds with the city around him. He takes everything personally. He takes New York personally. You know, every slight, every insult... He feels it all directed at him and he kind of walks around like this kind of walking wound, just collecting resentment. So it's a wonderful film about New York, but also about this state of mind of those who kind of exist in New York, just sort of soaking up all the the crazies from the woodwork, you know. Uh, And I think Scorsese, yes, he has a temperamental ability to kind of get inside the heads of someone like Travis Bickle. I think it's very unusual. You know, it's the one thing that marks him out for his contemporary directors. Is just how far he seems to understand that character. Uh, you know, Jodie Foster, who was in the movie, said, Marty gets behind your eyes. I think it's a great quote. And I think that's exactly what a movie like Taxi Driver does. It somehow it just kind of gets behind your eyes. You can't shake it. You know, afterwards, you just like you have to pace the streets yourself to kind of get it out of your system. Now, Tom, one of the things that jumps out from your book is how you framed the book through Sorsgazi's sense of spirituality in life, his spiritual identity. And I was interested to read that he at one stage thought he was going to be a priest. So do you think it's fair to say that he looks at movie making as some form of spiritual quest? to ask the big questions in life, whether they're the big philosophical or moral questions, and that somehow it all is quite a vocation for him. His artistic spirit is almost spiritual as well as artistic. I think that's an interesting way of putting it. I mean, he did uh, briefly consider becoming a priest when he was a young boy. There were two careers, he said, that were open to him, gangster or priest. (laughs) So he ended up choosing the one that was a mixture of the two, film director. (laughs) And, you know, so I think very much... You know, his sort of Catholic kind of upbringing is always there. And, you know, it's there in Raging Bull. It's there in Taxi Driver. It's there in Mean Streets. He's also made these very explicitly religious movies, like The Last Temptation of Christ, like Kundun, and like the movie he's making now, Silence. The theme is almost more powerful in the movies where religion is not addressed. You, you feel very much like Travis Bickle or Jake LaMotta in Raging Bull. These men seem to have kind of spiritual significance for him, particularly, I think, in Raging Bull, where you have essentially this sort of vision of this man who is sort of martyred by his life, essentially, uh, and who manages to survive and is kind of reborn. All the sort of imagery, and when he's sort of sponged down in the ring, uh, you see his sort of blood and water just dripping off his body. It has these sort of religious overtones, so it's always there, I think, uh, particularly in the movies where there's no religion in sight. Very interesting, the, the way this theme works with him. He's a paradox, you know, he's a man 
in search of peace and quiet. You know, that's, how, that's the one impression I got from him in particular. Like, he is a man who craves peace, and his sets are very quiet places. And anybody who makes a noise or interrupts that silence is ejected very quickly. You know, he made this movie about Buddhism, Kundun, in which it's all about the kind of search for inner peace. And yet, you think, well, that's Scorsese, you know, the, one of the biggest, rowdiest, noisiest, jacked-up filmmakers we have. He's a great disturber of the piece. He's obviously uh, fascinated by violence. So it's very much, I think, the extremes. It's sort of uh, Raging Bull on the one hand and all the sort of violence that we can inflict on one another uh, and then Kundun on, on the other, uh, which is the absolute opposite end of the spectrum. So uh, I think the best way of saying it is just that he's, he's just a man of great paradoxes and that those paradoxes speak to his breadth of spirit. Those complications are what make him interesting. Can I ask you about one of the most mesmerising films I think of all time, which is Gangs of New York? It's a tremendous movie. And I know Scorsese has said that making movies is like getting into the boxing ring. He considers it animalistic. It's like a fight. It's a frightening movie and it shows you how obsessed people can become. It's an amazing reflection on the darker sides of life. How would you situate that movie within his career? It's one of those great passion projects that he pulled around with him for decades. I mean, I think the first idea for Gangs of New York occurred to him in the 1970s. The screenwriter Jay Cox approached him with this idea. So he had been working on it for quite literally decades before he made it, and he tried to get it made a number of times. Uh, It almost got made in the early 90s, around about the time of Goodfellas, but the sort of everything kind of fell through again. And he finally got it largely, I think, because of Leonardo DiCaprio's involvement. Leonardo DiCaprio had just become a big star with Titanic, and he was able to turn on the money taps, so people were willing to invest in it. So that's what happened. You know, it got made in 2001. You know, I think it's very flawed. It's very ambitious. It's a slightly kind of wounded movie. I think it doesn't quite get to the place it wants to get to, but there are many things in it that are really glorious. Daniel Day-Lewis, not least of them. You know, I think that that performance of his is, is one of his best as Bill the Butcher, and he really does at that point, you really feel that Scorsese has found someone who can fill the hole left by De Niro. When Bill the Butcher is on screen, you very much feel like the sort of post-De Niro Scorsese's career has sort of found its its leading man. If the film has a, the flaw, I think it's largely DiCaprio, unfortunately. I sort of acted off the screen by Day-Lewis. It's not his fault. I think the, the part itself is, requires him to prevaricate and delay, and for a long time, a little like Hamlet. It's a very difficult thing to sort of make a movie around, especially a three-hour movie. Somebody who puts something off, <laughs> he puts off revenge for a long time. And I think it kind of lost the audience a little bit with that. But it's kind of, you know, got so many great things in it. Um, and, and clearly, again, Scorsese's great love of New York, and of the streets, his conviction that kind of history wasn't written in history books. It was, it was written on the streets. I think Gangs of New York is very much his attempt to kind of write that history. And The Wolf of Wall Street. It's a very powerful reflection on greed, humanity and ego and where that can take us and who will stick with us. It's an amazing film. It certainly is. I mean, that he made this film at the age that he is. I mean, I think that was the sort of striking thing about it is that it felt so alive. I mean, it was rather kind of almost grotesque satire on these people, but so alive. You know, he really, as with all these things, he can't make the movie unless he kind of can sympathize or get inside the heads of the people. So as much as it was a satire on Wall Street, I think also too, you know, it kind of appealed to him, his rock and roll instinct, the gangster instinct, the desire to see these guys kind of get away with it, which is essentially what most of them do. And the ending is very kind of ambiguous. Leonardo DiCaprio isn't sort of punished. It's, it's a very unusual picture in that regard. I think people were expecting something more moralistic, but he couldn't really make it unless he, in some senses, could 
be in their shoes or could imagine himself in their shoes. But it's an amazing film to watch and think, well, you know, he was 70 when he made it. It's a young man's movie. I mean, it's like the eternal adolescent in him, you know. It's really quite something. And I think maybe DiCaprio's kind of strongest work for him, I think that he, he, he really just finally kind of commands that movie in a way that didn't with some of their earlier work. But yeah, and very funny. I mean, that's the other thing. Scorsese is a very funny man. He's a very great storyteller. Laughs a lot. He's got this big machine gun kind of laugh, you know, that peels out. He's a very pale fellow, well-met kind of storyteller. You know, it doesn't surprise me when some of that comes through in the movies. Goodfellas is also a very funny film, I think. Uh, in fact, more so as time goes on. I think at the time it was very violent and people were slightly shocked. But as time goes on, now you watch it and it's, you know, it almost plays like a comedy. And that's kind of, again, Scorsese's roots. You know, on the streets of New York, he, he couldn't be the tough guy. So he tried to make everyone laugh. That was how he survived. And that was film critic and writer Tom Schoen. Scorsese, a retrospective, is published by Thames and Hudson and retails at about 35 euro. Now, seems as though we're getting so close to Christmas. Well, the good people at Books Ireland have a nice handy little competition for us this month. And we're offering one lucky listener to Talking Books, an annual subscription to Books Ireland for 2015. So this is how it's going to go. I'm going to give you quite an easy question and all you have to do is email talkingbooks at newstalk.ie with the answer. So here you go. Who was recently voted the Irish Tatler Arts and Literature Woman of the Year for 2014? And a little sneaky hint, the first children's author to be so honoured. Well, first one in to Talking Books and Newstalk.ie wins a year's subscription to Books Ireland. So off you go. OK, all that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Owen Holligan and Kate McDonnell who helped out with this week's show and the lovely Marianne Kennedy on sound. We've been talking books. I'd like to end this week's show with some beautiful words from Martin Sorsese from a letter he wrote to his daughter Francesca. In the letter, Martin Sorsese is describing his commitment to filmmaking and where he sees the future of the film industry. Scorsese writes, You have to be absolutely dedicated to the work. You have to give everything of yourself and you have to protect the spark of connection that drove you to make the picture in the first place. You have to protect it with your life. This isn't just a matter of cinema. There are no shortcuts to anything. I'm not saying that everything has to be difficult. I'm saying that the voice that sparks you is your voice. That the inner light, as the Quakers put it, that's the truth. That's you. Mama, take this badge off of me. I can't use it anymore. It's getting dark, too dark to see. I'm knocking on heaven's door Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door Mama put my guns in the ground I can't shoot them anymore That long black cloud is coming down I feel I'm knocking on heaven's door
Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.